welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm Anna, your host, and every month we'll be bringing you lively discussion and debate with inspiring women making a difference around the world, asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. So listen in to hear the stories, insights and opinions of those setting the pace and being the change. Today we're talking to Megan Cole, Principal Epidemiologist at Public Health England, fresh from the COVID-19 battle lines. And we're talking to her about the recent pandemic, being a high profile woman in the field of science, and how increasing diversity can benefit STEM as a whole. So welcome, Megan. Thank you very much. So busy time for you. <laughs> I don't think epidemiology has ever been quite so high profile. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Let's let's start out by just, uh, you know, for those who don't know, and I'm sure there are many people, what is the field of epidemiology and what's its scope? And, and uh, how has that come to be your field of, of uh, expertise? I think the most simple way of describing epidemiology is the study of a disease in a population. So epidemiology very much works on a population level rather than an individual level. That would be more the clinical side of health. So we're talking about public health and we're talking about um, trying to understand diseases and how they work in the population. So what populations are affected, why are they affected, e.g. this is their risk factors, and also trying to understand what are the determinants of poor health and bad outcomes. This is all with an effort to try A, you add evidence, you add numbers to what we know, but then B, you go on to inform policy and programs and interventions that can try and improve health um, and, and prevent diseases from happening. So I really got into epidemiology. I started off, I wanted to work internationally in developing countries, and I was initially really focused on uh, nutrition. And so I did my master's in public health back in, in the States. And then I came to London and worked at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. And at that time, I was doing research and uh, looking at different nutritional sort of outcomes and, and people in sub-Saharan Africa. And then I worked in hospitals for a little while um, in London, as still doing research. And I think, you know, that was a really great experience in terms of generating evidence. The problem was, as a researcher, I didn't have any way to follow through into policy and program development. So the really the reason I wanted to work at Public Health England and get into, you know, delve into the whole public health side is you're just closer to the policy side. You're actually able to make an impact on on the decision making and, and work together with your very many stakeholders, you know, community and clinicians and commissioners and academic to try and raise the focus um, where there's need. So Personally, I'm actually really drawn to the sort of community engagement side of public health. I might be what people call social epidemiologists. So I've never liked the idea that people view us as sort of faceless government workers who <laughs> sit in an ivory <laughs> tower somewhere making decisions. So I work really hard to sort of refute that that stereotype. Mm. How, how do you do that then? What, what's your sort of uh, focus when you're, when you're concentrating on being a community epidemiologist? What, how does that differ from a sort of, as you say, the faceless scientist? Well, I think one thing we do a lot of is stakeholder engagement. So uh, you have to know who's using the data that you produce, who are the interested parties, and really get into touch with the people who are affected or infected with the disease that you're working in. And in my main day job, I work in HIV surveillance. So this really means 
being in contact with the community of people living with HIV. And there's actually a very strong activist community as well. There's a lot of community organizations and peer support organizations. And so many times it's just being present at meetings, being present at events and workshops, asking the opinion of of, uh, where there are gaps in the evidence, what don't we know? And as a result of that, you can then adjust how you're doing your monitoring and your surveillance. You can collect extra things, perhaps things about deprivation, about employment. Um, A really key thing, as we know with COVID, has been things around ethnicity. Making sure you're monitoring then those things that can help us understand why there are disparities in health outcomes. And without that data, you can't then make the statement that, you know, X, Y, and Z you know, is is a problem and that needs to be solved. Or indeed, I guess XYZ is the thing that you should be doing now and, you know, how you control the disease, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, for an epidemiologist, obviously, we're talking about COVID because it is, you know, it's happening now. But is a disease a disease in terms of the way that you deal with the data? And you, as you said, you take forward that data and it informs policy. And Is COVID something exceptional to an epidemiologist or is it actually just pretty much another disease on the spectrum of the human experience? No, I, I think we can say that, that COVID is a sort of once in a generation phenomenon. It's in, unprecedented um, in its scale and its impact. Uh, Mm. for any sort of living memory. I think that's absolutely fair to say. That said, um, you know, we do have novel, we call them novel pathogens or new viruses or viruses that that breach the animal to human um, barrier all the time. Mm. And so in a way, you know, this is kind of our bread and butter of what we do at Public Health England, um, or what, you know, certain parts of that the organization does, is monitor novel pathogens and things that emerge. And so we do have the system set up to monitor lab testing, to monitor new symptoms um, as they emerge, to look for things you may have seen like excess deaths, excess mortality, so you can compare with what normally happens to what we're seeing now. Um, So all those mechanisms are in place already. Um, Just that usually you wouldn't see the level um, Mm. take hold in the population like what we have. You may see a few cases that might be imported or um, a few dozen cases in an outbreak, perhaps, but not not to this scale. Is that the key thing, that it's the speed of transmission and the fact that we, we now live in a global world? So certain pathogens, I guess, can move very quickly around the world in a way that they couldn't before. Um, is, is that what makes it novel? Well, coronaviruses are, are, you know, their whole family of viruses, some of whom circulate already in humans, and it can cause usually sort of cold or flu viruses, just, you know, they're in sort of the, the normal circulation globally. And then there's also coronaviruses that exist mainly in animals. What's unique about this particular um, coronavirus, I mean, we don't have exactly a perfect understanding of where it crossed the animal to human barrier. But when it did, it was very unique in its ability to then be spread from human to human after that. Mm. Um, and, And it did that 
through mutations or just it, it was it was facilitated through perhaps multiple introductions. That's what we might call it when a virus goes from an animal to a human and it kind of evolves an ability to, to spread itself. And then really, you know, coronavirus, a successful virus, as it were, allows itself mm. to spread rapidly without, you know, necessarily killing off its host that quickly, if you get what I mean. So some of yeah. the more deadly viruses are actually self-limiting in that way. Um, but coronavirus is kind of just right on that edge of being very, um, very infectious and also presenting in, in quite a mild disease in most of its cases. You know, you said, you, you, you know, your main area of research is, is HIV, but you're obviously working on COVID-19 response at the moment. What are you, what are you sort of doing and how has that arc developed through the months? Yes, uh, so I work in the Public Health England um, EpiCell. So um, our incident response is split into different sort of working groups called cells. Um, I started working there in late March. Uh, I was actually finishing my PhD, so I put it off as long as I could um, <laughs> being involved uh, so I could finish writing up. Um, but I ended up uh, joining right when um, surveillance system was being set up for COVID mortality. And so then very quickly, I was leading COVID mortality surveillance in England. And when I started then at the end of March, there was only about 100 COVID deaths reported in England. And so as we know, that number was set to unfortunately increase very rapidly. And I think today, nearly 40,000 deaths in England uh, related to COVID. So I've been witness to, yeah, pretty unprecedented phenomenon in terms of public health terms. Um, and my task really was to try and, and develop a way of counting um, these deaths very rapidly and in a comprehensive way. So that meant scoping out all the potential data sources that could be tapped into, sort of existing health uh, data sets that we have in the NHS and also laboratory Data, data systems, and then also setting up new reporting systems wherever needed. And then a big challenge then was also bringing the data together. So we need to make sure we're not double counting deaths, um, that the data quality was very good, and then actually reporting on a daily basis. And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges. And again, in my day job with HIV, we, we report numbers once per year. And in this situation, we have to be able to report numbers every single day to the Department of Health and Social Care. So it was a huge, huge challenge. Is it one of the biggest projects that you've ever been, you know, I was going to say, is it a high point, but that's not quite the right way of putting <laughs> it. It is, as you say, a once in a lifetime challenge. But for you professionally, did it take you by surprise for a start? Did you see it coming down the track? Or were you sort of, have you been swept up in it and you're having to sort of react on the hoof as it, as it were? I mean, I'd, I'd like to say I was really well prepared, <laughs> but, but I think I've been swept up in it more accurately, actually, because, um, again, it's been so unprecedented and it has uh, required just an awful lot of resources and expertise. When you ask about what's has this been the most important thing I've worked on? Well, yes, probably. Um, although HIV itself is a quite a high profile area of work, things that I've been working on have you know, presented at the 5 p.m. press conference by the prime minister on a daily basis. It's an incredibly fast-paced, um, high-profile, um, 
quite high pressured environment. And uh, yeah, you know, that is different to to the normal day to day work that I do. But I would say it's what we were trained for in a way, you know, it's like a military going off to war in a way is our our epidemiologists and our data analysts and our data scientists and our clinicians. And there's such a great wealth and great deal of talent at Public Health England. And so, yes, when coronavirus came, then it was like all hands on deck. And and yeah, we've all been part of this incredible but wild ride, I guess, um, to to, yeah, try and do our part. Where are we now from a data perspective, from an epidemiologist perspective? Because it is that strange thing now that the lockdown's ending, but we know that Corona's still out there. People are thinking, is there going to be a second wave? What does the sort of data, what do the numbers tell you? There's no doubt that we are in a much better place than we were three months ago. Um, not only in terms of the numbers, but also in terms of our infrastructure and our preparedness um, and and our knowledge mm. about what coronavirus is. And so now, as of today, I think we have around 300,000 cases known in the UK. Um, and I think there's more than 10 million now worldwide. And so with that actually gives us a lot of information and a lot of opportunity to understand the virus and particularly, you know, who is at risk and how it's spread. So we have a much better grasp on that now. And we now know that it's particularly affects uh, in terms of poor outcomes, like being very ill or dying, elderly people, um, men, um, people of black and minority ethnicities, people with certain comorbidities. And so with that knowledge, we can protect and prepare appropriately. You know, we're in a much better position now. Um, Also, summer's here and viral bugs are not very common anyways in summer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it won't totally go away. But I think we can feel as though we've got a bit more of a grasp on it now. In terms of in terms of the future, I guess, you know, as time marches on, you know, nobody has say for sure. um, But the the NHS is, you know, it's preparing for the second wave. in October, November. And I think that's partly because um, as the weather gets colder, viruses kind of come out in force. Perhaps people, kids will be going back to school and people will be going back to their workplaces. Mm. Um, And so we have to be prepared for a rise in cases that time um, and measures perhaps to be taken. Again, I couldn't say for sure, but I don't think we'll be in a place like we were at the very start, um, when I think the, really the whole world was was caught off guard. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it felt like, didn't it? It felt like the the WHO sort of called a pandemic, and then everyone kind of went, "Oh, what yep. do we do now?" <laughs> um, well, maybe that's just why I thought, but that's what it what it felt in terms of the way that people responded. And obviously, there's been different outcomes, and and you know, in different countries. I mean, do we share you know our our sort of best practice COVID data with other countries? Is there a sort of general pool of information that's helped us to understand it more? There's lots of different ways that we share some knowledge with other countries. Um, the World Health Organization kind of collates a pool of data um, on a weekly basis, actually. So we we report um, anonymized data um, that we, we have in the UK. 
about cases, about deaths, about hospital admissions. And um, so that is able to be used to do really high impact and really um, in-depth analyses. Then, of course, we have the scientific literature. This has also been an unprecedented time for publications. So currency of scientific progress is to publish manuscripts and peer-reviewed journals. And that's happening at a much more rapid rate than has ever been done before. You know, it has to be peer-reviewed and accepted for publication and typeset and everything. And usually that can take months. And now it's happening in a matter of days and you're getting preprints and pre-releases and you're able to see the data quite early on. So that's revolutionized things as well. And I think yeah, as, as we go and we add to the pool of knowledge and literature, we're able to make more informed policy decisions. The WHO is better able to lead from an international perspective, and then we can take our lead off of that as well in terms of policy. Given that there might possibly be a second wave of sorts in the autumn, and given that we know so much more now, I mean, do you think there will be a difference in the way that perhaps the way that policy uh, is implemented, uh, in the way that we handle that second wave? And what do you think the main differences will be? I mean, I wouldn't imagine we'd go into another full lockdown. I mean, I think that it is a difficult question to answer just because the things that I would recommend may not be, you know, what, what you know, our political leaders implement. Mm. Um, but <laughs> I would tend to say I think we can go into more of a focused approach where we've got this um, track and trace program set up. And what that's meant to do is identify where there's a number of out uh, of cases where you might have an outbreak um, and then keep that local. And so then you can implement some measures. One thing you can do is con contact trace. So tell people who've been in contact. But you could also say, OK, West Hertfordshire for the next week, we're going to close all the pubs and restaurants um, and ask you to keep your you know, two meters or one plus meters type of thing. And in that way, you can contain the outbreak more. I think that would be the best case scenario that you can then contain of outbreaks from moving around and really getting a footing in that way. Also shielding those populations we now know who are vulnerable, we can take much stronger action knowing which groups um, should be shielded, how to do PPE in the best way in things like care homes and in hospitals. So we now have some breathing space, I think, over this summer and, and some time to really develop that guidance really well so that we don't have, um, you know, the implications of the second wave that we've had the first time around. Mm, we're not we're not being caught off guard. Is the is the ultimate goal then to eradicate COVID-19 or is it just to be able to be controlling how it moves through the population until such time as, I don't know, as it becomes a weakened virus, maybe? I don't know. How, what's what's the sort of a ultimate goal, do you think? I think the end game is probably one of two things. Either um, it becomes an established virus within the circulating viruses within the population. And that's something that we've seen with, with swine flu at the very start. It had quite a severe impact 
not as bad as COVID, but because none of our systems were virgin immune systems to this new virus. And so as time has gone on, immune systems have mounted to defense and we're able to cope with some a virus. And then it just becomes a regular circulating virus that might cause a bit of a flu type of illness. So that's one outcome. The other outcome is that we get a vaccine. The challenge then is obviously rolling out the vaccine to the populations who need it and making that accessible. We know it's needed now globally, and that's unlikely to happen in the next year or so. So we do need to be prepared that it's not it's not just around the corner. But if there was a vaccine, then I think we could be looking more towards eradication. But without that, it won't ever be eradicated. It, the way I've heard it characterized is like a bit of a whack-a-mole thing. So you'll be basically all around, you know, the world will be popping up here, popping up there, you know, up and down in many different places. And yeah, I think we just got to try and do as much as we can to manage those outbreaks and those cases. And keep one one step ahead, I guess, with with all of the data and knowledge that you and your colleagues have to map where things are and what's going on. Having COVID for the, you know, vast majority of people is, is actually okay. You know, they have very mild symptoms or maybe none at all. Um, So it's not that we have to be afraid of the virus no matter what. I think we just have to be protecting the people who could do very badly and be very ill with the virus and then also have the healthcare facilities to be able to help those people and have, you know, the space and the capacity to deal with that. I think once that's in place, I think we won't find it such a scary, uh, a scary virus anymore. Well, so let's move on to the idea of diversity. I mean, because that's an interesting top line look at, at how many different sources of information and many different cultural interpretations and cultural practices can feed into greater knowledge. And I wanted to talk to you about just the, this idea of diversity in, in the scientific community generally. I mean, it, it's a hot topic now. And a lot of research shows that the more voices and the more perspectives you have, the, the, you know, the more likely you are to have excellence and innovation drawing it back from a global level to to a, just a purely country level. You're obviously a, a high-profile woman in a STEM career. What was your experience as a, as a woman going into a STEM career? I mean, when did you know that you wanted to go into science? I think I knew I wanted to get into science really early on. I just excelled in science and maths, and so I was steered you know, in that direction anyways, really interested in the health side of things, what some might call the softer sciences. I think personally, um, I'm not sure I experienced that many barriers to getting into science. Um, Perhaps the barriers then came up later when you're talking about progression in a scientific career. And I think when it comes to women in STEM is, is really where the the problem lies and where there is a bottleneck. I think there's quite a lot of evidence, uh, you know, out there that shows that women tend to progress up to a certain level. And then there's really, you know, even distribution of men and women at junior and mid-level jobs. But in the most senior jobs, it's still very much dominated by men. And I think a lot of that is women having families um, and taking time out of their careers. And in science, you know, there's not always 
understanding around that. Like I said, if your if your currency is to publish three to you know six papers a year in scientific journals, and you're measured on your ability to do that, and then you take a year off, you're disengaging from projects, you're disengaging from publications, and you're disengaging from all this conversations that would be happening. And I think that can be a hurdle that's very difficult to overcome for women. I would say in my specific area of work, I work in HIV and sexual health, and we do actually have a disproportionate number of women in that particular, <laughs> in that field. So I actually have a lot of, yeah, I have a lot of, um, and a lot of LGBT populations as well. And so actually my area of work is, is, is pretty diverse and I have a lot of strong female role models for myself, but that's absolutely certainly not the case um, in many areas in STEM. That's really interesting though, isn't it? Something like 23% of those STEM workforce is, uh, is female, but actually, science, um, according to the data that I've uh, looked at, uh, women make up 43.2%. So that sometimes those numbers are a bit not misleading, because I don't think anyone would say that there's gender parity across the board. But as you say, there's different areas have different makeups, for whatever reason that is. Um, I mean, it's really interesting, when I was sort of uh, having a think about this, I thought, well, I wonder if, obviously, loads of people have gone online with their jobs during the COVID uh, pandemic. And, and actually, that's had interesting results in terms of people's work-life balance, uh, the gender division at home. But I imagine science isn't something you can really do on your own at home. I mean, you can write papers, yes, but it's not something that you can get that flexibility uh, that other jobs might possibly offer. Yeah, I mean, it's such a diverse field. It's really hard to say broadly for one group or another. So the main bit of my job is very desk-based. Right. And, you know, I can I can do that from home, a lot of it. If you were to work in a lab environment, it may be a totally different story because you have to work there in a laboratory and, or, mm. you know, perhaps in an engineering, you may have to work more in a more hands-on sort of capacity. But I actually think that COVID has brought us forward and our models of working and the way we work probably what we should have been thinking about about 10 years ago. You know, we've had teleconferencing facilities and things have been around. You can work from home really effectively. And some areas do, for example, in IT, many people work remotely. Apart from perhaps the social side of things and maybe mental health side of things, it has worked really well to be able to work remotely. And I think, um, I mean, I have two young children age uh, six and three, and my partner works. So I think having that um, work-life balance closer to home has actually been really, really good. The other thing I would say, though, it's been really interesting learning experience during COVID, the mortality surveillance that I've worked on. I've actually co-led with um, two other women who have young children We've shared it because um, at the moment, in the incident response, the, the shifts are 12 hours from eight to eight, and it's seven days a week. And so no one person can, can do that job. Between the three of us, we've been able to job share. And what's been really useful, actually, as and unique for me as being in this small group of women who kind of, we understand each other's challenges. So if we have to be on a call with each other doing a handover and a child runs in a room crying and screaming, you know, we all understand there's no judgment there. Yeah. <laughs> um, if somebody says, can you swap this shift with me? Um, or I need to come in like an hour late because I have to, you know, do the school drop off or something. We all understand there's absolutely no issue with that. And, and it's just been a really nice, safe 
place to be working in this as a woman. You don't feel like you have to make excuses. We all are on the same boat. I've been really proud to be part of that group who, despite having six young children between us, um, we've managed to do quite a lot in the COVID response, but working together. I, lo- I love that. Yeah. Producing policy critical analysis whilst also making sure that <laughs> six oh, children are You don't know the half of it. God, I can imagine. Well, no, I don't yes. think I can actually, um, <laughs> but that's incredible. It makes me feel like a really underachieving three months. <laughs> so you're told you have a, do you have a, a girls or boys or both? And, and would you actively you know, encourage them to pursue sort of science? Yeah. So I have a, I have a girl, a daughter who's six. Um, and my son is three. So my, my son has, has learning difficulties. So I think our, our main aim for him is, you know, to get the best out of him that we possibly can. But my daughter, um, you know, I would absolutely want her to get into STEM. You know, if she's interested in it, I would I would absolutely support that because I think STEM needs um, more strong women in it to make changes and to make impact. I think if women have um, the role models, the guidance, the mentorship, they see women in positions that they can aspire to, then, you know, there should be no limit um, onto their aspirations and, and what they can achieve in that way. I think it's probably for my generation to try and make that possible and, and work harder towards that um, so that my daughter's generation can can grow up into that and see that as normal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, were you actively encouraged at school? Or do you think that, that there needs to be more of a, of a sort of a, a pipeline for young women that starts at school? Because there, there is yeah. traditionally quite a drop-off, isn't there, around about GCSE level? There's a, there's a science drop-off amongst young women. I grew up in the States, um, so it's maybe a, a little bit different there. We don't have the same education system, so you, we do have quite a few women going into um, college degrees for, for STEM. But again, there is drop-off in people moving into different areas, even with their STEM degrees, particularly for women. For me, it was actually having a really good good mentor at university. And she was a woman who looked at my strengths and my aspirations. And she was able to guide me um, towards a career path and show me the options that were that were out there for me um, and, and help me think about things. And that was really useful for me. I'm actually a first-generation college um, graduate in my family, uh, so I don't come from a STEM background or or really much of a sort of professional background, um, so I had to find my own way. But having mentorship from women was really important and actually has been for my whole career. I've been then worked under um, actually two two in particular women who are absolutely incredible leaders. I've just been really lucky. But then I think that's that helps you to motivate your aspirations and think, well, if they can do it, I can, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Those visible role models at all, all levels. You know, I think I read something recently where people were asked if they could name a, a woman in science and one in three people couldn't name anyone, which is pretty shocking. And it is an indictment on the fact that, you know, that, that there's still a lot to go in those visible role models. I mean, you yourself are sort of saving the world at home with all your kids and your colleagues. And yet that's, <laughs> it's sort of invisible, isn't it? Because the person presenting the science to the public is not you. Um, so it, it, those kind of role models are so important to get out there. And Yeah, it's happening a bit behind the scenes. I think even seeing women at 
the, you know, five o'clock press conference that was happening, you know, mm. women were underrepresented even there. Everybody was tuning in to learn the science. And if they see a whole lot of white men, you know, reciting the science mm. to them, then why are they thinking, oh, you know, they don't self-reflect in that. And then perhaps they don't see themselves doing that. So that's why the representation is absolutely crucial. Um, being able to see yourself and the person who's talking on the television and whether it's on a press conference at number 10 or whether it's on Good Morning Britain or, you know, somewhere else. Yeah. And sort of those comes, you know, experienced and trained leaders out there because they don't mm. have to be the ones that are groundbreaking doing the groundbreaking research. They just have to be able to communicate it well and be booked onto shows and be somebody that people are willing to listen to. And yeah, I do think that that women are overlooked in many ways. What would your advice be to young women who are considering a career in science? What have you learned that you would pass on? I think part of it is is knowing yourself and knowing what you're interested in, first of all. And thinking about, um, yeah, if, if it's a young woman, she's at school, what interests her? You know, what makes you question the world around you? What makes you want to know more? And really, that's a lot of what science is, is just trying to understand the world better and, and answering questions that you have. Um, and there's so many, you know, different areas of science. Again, people think about, you know, a scientist in a laboratory, you know, bubbling up some concoction. But, you know, a scientist is digging up rocks, you know, it, it, it is, a scientist is finding alpine plants in, in the Alps. A scientist is me sitting at my desk, you know, analyzing data, doing analysis. Um, you know, scientists come in so many different types and forms and sizes and shapes and colors and everything. So I think if you're somebody who, who wants to know more about the world, you're curious, you, you want to answer some questions, then consider STEM. Then I think try and find somebody. We have an amazing resource in things like Twitter and, and social media that actually you can follow. There's lots of lots of incredible STEM um, women accounts. Follow those, read more, ask questions, reach out to people if you want to learn more about any particular field. And then also, yeah, don't give up. If they people tell you can't do it, just ignore them. <laughs> ignore them <laughs> always good <laughs> always good advice <laughs> just mm -hmm. ignore them yeah. Megan well thank you for helping us to to understand this uh strange COVID-19 time even better and it has been absolutely lovely to talk to you today I'll let you get back to more important pandemic research but uh thanks again for joining us thank you for having me mm -hmm.